Okay, if you would take your Bible this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Mrs. Hoyle takes Mia out for junior church. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I'm going to read the entire chapter. It's just 16 verses. 1 Corinthians 2 and beginning at verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. As I was with you in meekness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of man, save the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Titled the message this morning, taken from verse 5, A faith that stands, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Titled the message is a faith that stands. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the privilege and opportunity we have to open your precious word. Thank you, Father, that we have it preserved for us in our own language. Thank you for the Spirit of God that dwells within us when we are born again, that teaches us, instructs us, and confirms to us the truth of the word of God. I pray, Father, as we look into your word today, that we'd be encouraged and strengthened and challenged and confirmed as the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Father, we do pray there be any in our midst who do not have that assurance. Maybe their, maybe their faith stands in the wisdom of men. I pray today they'd realize their need to put their faith in the wisdom of God, in the power of God to save their souls. So, Lord, just work. Glorify yourself. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27, what's called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus compares or likens salvation to a man that builds his house on a rock. 
You know, we've made it a song that we teach the children. The wise man built his house upon the rock. You know, the wise man built his house upon the rock. And the winds came and floods came and blew upon the house and it fell not. The foolish man builds his house upon the sand. And of course the winds and the rains come and it fell. You know, the point of that is, if we build our salvation on the right foundation, it will stand the tests and trials of life. And the point of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is, if we want a faith, if we want a salvation experience that stands the trials and tests of life and the judgment of God, which is coming, which is the examination of God, it must stand in the power of God. It must rest in His authority. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And everybody makes much about the grace of God, as if the grace of God is all by grace, and we can do whatever we want. That's not what that's teaching. If you keep it in context, again, he, the grace of God brings salvation. It's, not, it's by grace you're saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works. But verse 10 says, We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk with him. We are his workmanship. In other words, we are what he has made. We are of his making. That's what the word workmanship means. It is God that makes us a new creature or a new creation in Christ Jesus. We are the work of God. So our salvation or our faith then stands in the power or the working of God. It is a faith in God of which Jesus Christ is the author. He is the maker, the creator, the, or, the originator. That's the idea there. That is why you cannot get saved when you, whenever you want to or however you want. God is the one who saves. Salvation originates from Him. He is the source and grantor of it. And so to have a faith that stands, Paul addressing here to the church at Corinth, and these were saved people, there's, he reminds them of several things. First of all, there needs to be a declaration of truth. In verses 1 through 6, he talks about that, and we see the first thing I want to notice is there needs to be a declaration of the testimony of God. In verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. Speaking about the testimony of God, the idea here is to declare what God has done through Christ for the salvation of man. We are to declare the word of God as it is given. We declare the word of God as it is given. And I want you to notice several things. And one of the things that, that Paul paid no attention to when declaring the testimony of God, he paid no attention to who they were. If you notice in verse 2, For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now what, what's it mean? He, he determined not to know anything among Remember, we were just talking in chapter 1 about the divisions in Corinth and the root of those divisions. You know, there were rich people Wealthy, you know, rich people, influential people, people in positions of power and influence, and, and in, also in the church where there, there was poor people, probably slaves. Because 
the majority of the population at Corinth was slaves. There were more slaves lived in Corinth than there did free people, according to historians. So there's all these kinds of people. And Paul said, you know what? That really doesn't matter. When we're talking about whether a person can be saved or lost, that really doesn't matter. And he said, I really didn't know all that. It didn't matter. It didn't, that doesn't make any difference. They all need the gospel, and the gospel is the same to everyone. So, so I determined not to know anything among you. See, it doesn't really matter who you are. That doesn't matter. You can be a sinner, the worst of sinner, or the most moral person around, but you're still a sinner. You can be a free or slave. It really doesn't matter. You class society and social distinctions, you know, though they were seeds of division, they really don't matter when it comes to the, to the, to the truth of the word of God. He simply declared the testimony of Jesus Christ and him crucified. He simply taught them concerning the person of Christ. You know, he didn't spend his time finding out who was rich and who was influential and who he wanted to help build the church. Or what he could get out of people. He wasn't a Balaam seeking wages. The second thing I want you to notice in relating to declaring the testimony of God, he declared it in weakness, fear, and trembling. Now, I don't know about you, but when I used to read about the life of Paul, I used to think he wasn't afraid of anybody. And he wasn't afraid of anything. I mean, he was just as bold. You know, Proverbs talks about the righteous are as bold as lions. Boy, that was Paul. But he says here, I was in, if you notice in verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Now, the word weakness here means weakness of soul or a want of strength and capacity required to do great and glorious things. As, for example, the want of wisdom or skill in speaking or in the management of men. So Paul is saying, you know, I, I was weak in these areas and you know, and, and I think about Paul. You know, Paul was training to be a who's who in Jerusalem, a member of the Sanhedrin. I mean, he was on his way to be, be somebody going somewhere. And he said, I was in weakness among you. I was in want of skill in speaking. He said, I was in fear. Do you know what fear means? It means he's afraid. He's afraid. Fear and trembling. It's used to describe the anxiety of one who distrusts his ability completely to meet all requirements. In other words, he did not trust in his abilities to declare the testimony of God. What he's really saying is, in my flesh, I am not capable of declaring the testimony of God. You know, remember when he wrote to the church at Philippi, and he said, you know, he told them how he was a Pharisee of Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, and then he said, I count it all but dung. That doesn't qualify me, though I was educated, doesn't qualify me to declare the testimony of God.
You see, Paul clearly understood that when he preached the gospel, he was declaring the truth that had the power to give life or death. And it was something that was beyond him. In other words, he was fearful he might say something that could be used as a stumbling block to a lost person. He was fearful of that. And so he put his dependence solely upon the Lord. Lord, help me to say the right things in the right way. Fear and trembling. But his preaching, as it says in verse 4, he said, but, you know, I was with fear and trembling, but, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The word demonstration means a showing forth of truth as opposed to rhetorical arts or philosophical arguments. Now, rhetorical means simply concerned with mere style or effect. You know, Paul wasn't concerned with the style, with a mere style or effects. He didn't use rhetorical arts, fancy words or philosophical arguments. You know, I read last Sunday, I think it was, you know, just two weeks ago about the guy that said, you know, soul winning is using psychology, reverse psychology. You know what Paul would call that? Enticing wisdom, man's wisdom. He says he, he didn't use enticing words. That means persuasive or to prevail, prevail upon us. Now, he did try to persuade, but he didn't use enticing words. Marked by or tending to use exaggerated language or bombastic language saying these wild and crazy things that really aren't true biblically. By the way, this is very common in our world. Just turn the TV on and listen to a TV preacher and that's what you'll get. This is a quote from the pastor of the largest church in America where you heard in Sunday school who that is quoted by John MacArthur, and this, this is a quote from his book, Best Life Now. He says, quote, If you develop an image of success, health, abundance, joy, peace, happiness, nothing on earth will be able to hold you those things from you. All of us were born for earthly greatness. You were born to win. God wants you to live in abundance. You were born to be a champion. He wants to give you the desires of your heart. Before we were formed, he prepared us to live abundant lives, to be happy, healthy, and whole. But when our thinking becomes contaminated, it's no longer in line with God's word. And God's word is that word that comes to us mystically, spiritually, that tells us what we should want. Unquote. Now that, my friend, is enticing words of man's wisdom. It's also called a lie. It's an outright lie. 
Even the title of the book, Best Life Now, I guess he must be going to hell because this isn't my best life now. Think about it. By the way, I do think he is. Uh, of course, that's Joel Osteen. What about? I have a few questions. What about? Do you believe in God? Do you believe you're a sinner? Oh, yeah, everybody sins. Of course, you know. Do you believe Jesus died on the cross? Do you just pray and ask him to save you? By the way, that's a lot of techniques that are used in independent Baptist churches. Pray after me. And my question is, is that how New Testament preachers preach the gospel? Let's go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. And I want to kind of go through verse 22 to 28. I'm not going to read all this for sake of time, but I want to point out some things. And this is the first sermon that Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. And he starts out, Ye men of Israel, here are these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. So he points out, Jesus was a man approved of God, who did wonders and miracles by God. And then he talks about how they they were guilty of his death. Verse 23, uh, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken by wicked hands, have crucified and slain. Verse 24, it talks about how he was resurrected. God hath raised him up and loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holden of, de- of it. You know, if, 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 he's not, if it's not possible for him to be holden of death, that means the only person that can break the power of death is God. Uh, he was prophesied of the Old Testament. David, verse 25, speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, and so on. Uh, and, and he called him the Holy One. I want you to notice in verse uh, uh, 20, uh, 27, it, it's the Holy and One is capitalized, so it's referring to a person. Uh, he was made of the seed of David, again, and given the throne, promised the throne of David. And he's also... Uh, spoken of in verses 32 and 36 as uh, being at the right hand of, verse 33, being at the right hand of God exalted, having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he himself saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, that man that was approved of God, God hath made him both Lord and Christ. Hmm. So that man is not just a man. He's the Lord. You know, Jesus quoted that phrase. Why did David say, call him Lord? to the Pharisees. He asked them why. And they wouldn't answer him. They wouldn't give him an answer. Because they knew if they were answered, they either have to deny it or they have to submit to him. See, Lord requires submission. He's the Lord. He is God. He's also the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the chosen one of God to be the acceptable sacrifice of sin. And this is the pattern throughout the book of Acts. Now, 
you know, in reading the book of Acts, God doesn't give us the whole sermons that these men preached every time. Understand that. So when men pull verses out of, out of their context and simply say these, these cute little things, they're not giving you the whole message. I mean, if God, if God would have recorded for us a Philip's entire sermon to the Ethiopian eunuch, it'd probably be a couple chapters long. Because we know he talked to him about baptism, because the eunuch said, what doth hinder me to be baptized? Now, the passage doesn't say that. But the eunuch asked. So obviously, Philip said something to him about baptism. But notice what Philip does say to him in response to that question. He says, And Philip said, If thou believest with all thy heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's not just Jesus the man. He's the anointed one. That's what Christ means. He's a Messiah. And then he says he is also the Son of God. And again, this is the pattern throughout the, the, uh, the book of Acts. Uh, chapter 9, verse 20 through 22. Paul at Damascus straightway preached Christ, Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. In verse 22. But Saul increased the more in strength confined the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. You see, the Jews weren't, didn't have such a problem with Jesus. They had a problem with him being the Christ. And the Lord. That's where the problem was. You know, the world doesn't have a problem with Jesus. If you go to the mission field, especially the Far East, they'll just add Jesus to another one of their saviors. But when he's the Lord and the Christ, that distinguishes him from every other, quote, savior. And Paul understood this was serious business. There's nothing more important in the world than this. Nothing more powerful or holds eternal consequences than declaring the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about the context here of Paul at Corinth. When he went to Corinth, he, you know, if you go back to the book of Acts and follow his journeys, he had... He, in Acts 16, he'd just been released from the Philippian jail. He goes to Thessalonica in chapter 17, and he asks to flee to Berea. And there, and, and there they come from Thessalonica after him again, and he has to flee from there, so he goes to Athens. And at Athens, he's mocked and ridiculed by some, believed by others. And then he comes to Corinth, a bustling city of business, of vice, and physical and spiritual danger. And he says, I was in weakness and fear and trembling. And he was fearful. I think he was fearful for his well-being as well as that he would be careful to speak the truth. Because, you know, when, 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 people, when your life is threatened, it, don't you tend to uh, not say things that would offend? Of course you do. And the Lord had to reassure him. In Acts chapter 18, you'll read, the Lord says to him, Be not afraid. But speak, I have much people in this city. You 
You know, he was fearful not just for his well-being, that he would speak the truth so that their faith would stand in the power of God. You know, I fear the reason so many live in doubt and lack of victory in their lives is they have started on a faulty foundation. Just believe in Jesus. Pray and ask the Lord to save you. Well, why do I need to be saved? What is sin? Who's God? Who is Jesus? These are all questions that need to be answered. We're not to entice with man's wisdom, as Paul says here, though he did persuade. He did, he did appeal to reason or understanding to convince them of the truth of the word of God. He gives them the knowledge of the person of Jesus Christ. That he was God manifest in the flesh. That he was Christ, the anointed one. See, salvation or being born again is based on an understanding of God, of sin, of the person of Christ, the only acceptable sacrifice for sin. You will not give people or bring people to a firm foundation of salvation by slick salesmanship or worldly psychology, what you'll give them is a false hope. I remember one man, one evangelist said years ago, he went to New Hampshire to pastor a church for a while, and it was in a college town. And uh, there was another uh, pastor there, and uh, he was talking to him one day about his approach people with the gospel. And this pastor said, well, I don't, I'm very careful. I don't, I don't confront them uh, or, or challenge them about sin. And so I, I kind of sneak up on them with Jesus. And he said, well, how's that working? And he said, well, it's not. You know, Paul was careful that he would declare the testimony of God clearly. Well, the second thing here that we see is there needs to be a revelation of truth. In verses 7 through 13, he says, But we speak the wisdom of God in mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world under our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as is written high, hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love them, him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Now the word revealed here in verse 10 means to uncover, to lay open what has been veiled. And it's used of God, revealing to men things before unknown. When you see the word mystery in the Bible, and it's used often in Paul's writings, he uses it in Ephesians also, that he was given uh, to understand the mysteries of the kingdom and so on. But the word mystery simply means something before hidden that is now revealed. That's what it means. And, and so he talks here about the mystery which was before unknown. And he, and, he, and he says in verse 7, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. So this mystery that God ordained before the world unto our glory is salvation. 
and that we will be glorified with Him. You know, Colossians chapter 1, in verses 25 through 27, Paul talks about this. And Colossians 1, 25, Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to the saints, to whom God would make known, so he's revealing the mystery, what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, to the Jews, that a Gentile could be saved was a mystery. That the Gentiles would be brought into the church is a mystery. It was hidden to them. But Christ said, you know, that, that God is, that is going to be glorified in the Gentiles, that was a mystery. And so this mystery was hid, but God had ordained it from the foundation of the world. And see, the princes of this world never saw it. They were the ones that actually crucified the Lord. The elites of society, the educated, the nobility, they did not understand the mystery. Now, there were a few, but as a general rule, they all missed it. Because they would not receive it of the Spirit of God. See, truth is revealed to us by the Spirit of God, not by our education. You notice in verse 10, But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Now, I'm not downplaying education. We need education to understand simple grammar and understand your rules of speech and so on. It's a great help. But education will not give us understanding into the truths of God's Word. The Spirit of God does. You see, the truths of the gospel in our relationship as children of God is still a mystery to the lost world. They don't understand it. And it says, the Spirit searcheth. If you notice in verse 10, the Spirit searcheth all things. It means He examines into, He investigates, He searches all things. See, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to search us. To search us. To investigate us. We notice in verse 11. What man knoweth the things of man, save the spirit of man which is in him. Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. You know, Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And the spirit of God takes the word of God and searches us. We'll say more, a little bit more about this later. But he searches. He also teaches. Notice in verse 13. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but with the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. See, Paul taught or instructed his instruction was in the demonstration of the Spirit and His power. The Spirit of God, he, the Spirit of God directed him, and he compared spiritual things with spiritual. The Spirit of God will bear witness to the truth, or to the words of God. 
Notice again, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teaches. What's the words of the Holy Ghost? Well, 2 Peter 1.21 says, For prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. See, the things that the Word of God, or the Spirit of God has spoken is the Word of God. And that's what he teaches with. Of course, you know, 2 Peter 1.21, referring to the Old Testament. John 14.26 refers to the New. He'll bring all things to your remembrance, what I have spoken unto you. He will teach you all things and bring all things to remembrance. You know, there, and of course, in that context... That was before the crucifixion. That was still yet to come, which we now have in the New Testament. So it is the words which the Holy Ghost teacheth, is the words of God. So the Spirit of God teaches us by His Word and gives us understanding. So when you hear preaching or teaching, uh, He will testify as to whether it is true. Spiritual with spiritual means thoughts, opinions, precepts, maxims, ascribable to the Holy Spirit working in the soul. You know, and John says in, in 1 John 2.27, The anointing which you have received of him abideth in you, speaking by the Spirit of God. Need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie. Even as it hath taught you, you shall abide in him. So the Spirit of God will bear witness to the truth, the Word of God. Simply said, when the Word of God is properly preached, taught, or expanded, explained, the Spirit of God will do one of two things. When it's properly taught and see it, he'll say, this is true, this is true, this is true. He'll bear witness that it is true. If it's worldly wisdom or psychology or empty rhetoric, he will say, something wrong here. Something wrong here. This is not true. He'll give you a sense. You may not be able to put your finger on it, but he'll tell you there's something wrong here. I remember years ago, we were at her, um, my wife's parents' house, and there's a couple came. They were probably in their, I'm going to say, and I don't remember their names, but I, I remember this like it was yesterday. They came to visit, because I think they had gone to his church for a little while. But anyway, they said, after, you know, and they were, we were talking about how some people who profess to be saved can go to churches or go to like a Catholic church. And this man said, he said, you know, when I got saved, he said, I went to this church. And he said, I didn't really know anything. I didn't know much about the Bible. But he said, we went to this church. And he said, I'm sitting there listening to this preacher. And he said, someone just told me, this is not right. He said, I couldn't put my finger on it as to why, but there's something in me said, this is not right. The truth is not here. And he said, we look for another church. That's the Spirit of God bearing witness. You see, he compares spiritual things. That word comparing means to join fitly, or together fitly, or to compound, or to combine. There is harmony in the Word of God that is taught properly. It doesn't contradict other passages of Scripture. 
You know, Isaiah 8, 20 says, To the law and to the testament, if they speak not according to this word, is because there's no light in him. 1 Corinthians 14, 32 says, And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. And when Joseph Smith, who claims to be a prophet, contradicts the word of God, he is a false prophet. He is subject, and if Joel Steen, who he does, he's subject to the prophets, to the word of God. So if I speak not according to this word, guess what? I'm a false prophet. And you and I have the liberty to choose what we will do with the truth. We can say, yes, I agree, and I submit by willing obedience. Or we can say, no, I don't like it, and resist, and be uncomfortable, agitated, or angry. Some people get so uncomfortable they walk out of the service or go to the bathroom. Remember I had a lady in Maine. Every time I preached on a certain subject, she'd get up and go to the bathroom. I knew why. I just couldn't prove it at that point. But you know, after it came to light and it was dealt with, she never went to the bathroom during the service again. And I could preach on anything I wanted. Because she got forgiveness. And now she was liberated. And that brings me to the third point. There needs to be also reception of the truth. And I must hurry. Verses 14 through 16. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he is in judged of no man. Now, a reception of the truth, this, this requires that one to be born, of course, to be born of the Spirit, to understand God's truth. We have to be born of the Spirit. We have to have the Spirit of God working in our life. You know, Jesus said in John 3, 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It talks about perception or understanding. They, you know, the, the, they need to explain to them, as they, and as they open their minds and heart, the Spirit will begin to convince and convict a lost person. But they need to open their minds to receive it. If their minds are closed, like the Pharisees, the Pharisees' minds were closed. They would not hear. That's what Paul says. They would not hear. Their eyes have they closed. And their ears have they shut. See, to understand truth, there must be a willingness to receive it, even as a child of God. If you and I want to grow in our Christian life, we have to be willing to grow. Willing to change. Willing to conform to the word of God. This is demonstrated to us by the word discerned in verse 14. The end of the verse says, because they are spiritually discerned. That means investigated or interrogated. The truths of God's word are spiritually discerned. In other words, they're spiritually investigated out or interrogated out. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you spend time researching, investigating something you really don't care about? I'm afraid that's why many Christians are ignorant of the truths of the Bible and God's will for their life. And it may show itself in uncertainty, confusion, or lack of assurance. Because we just don't see it as important enough to 
to really search it out. See, the Bible says here, the things of God are spiritually discerned. In other words, you're going to have to spend some time. You're going to have to show that you really mean business by being willing to investigate. You know, investigation takes a lot of time. To search it out. I want you to notice one other thing. He that is, verse 15, he that is spiritual judgeth all things. You know what a spiritual man does? He investigates everything. He examines it. He inquires into it. He scrutinizes. He sifts through it. He questions. And he determines the excellence, of the, the excellence or defects of anything. He comes to conclusions. He searches that. The spiritual man judges all things. And the key here is, if we be first a willing mind. Willing mind, not able minds, willing minds. God is looking for those who are willing to judge all things. That means they're not just going to judge, that means that they are going to judge themselves by the mirror of God's word. He judges, notice he judges all things. And that doesn't mean he goes around judging every person. You know what that is? That's a Pharisee. No, he judges everything. He starts in his own life. You know, there are those that go around and think they're God's policemen or something. Judging everyone and everybody in every church. We're writing articles about them and you know, so on and so forth. You know what we need to start? We need to start with self. A spiritual man will start with himself. You see, he will endeavor by the grace of God to make God preeminent in his life. He will be willing to crucify the flesh daily, renew the mind daily in his word, meditate in his law, pray without seeking, seeking the power and help of God. He'll test everything by his word. It is to seek the mind of Christ. You think about it. Here in verse 16, Paul says, but we have the mind of Christ. You know, to, to, to judge everything by the word of God, to have the mind of Christ, it means to have the wisdom of God in every circumstance to make the right choice. To say the right words to answer every man. The right response to every trial or test in life. A heart of love for every soul. And, and it means to be judged by no man. Preacher, what does that mean? You will not be liable to condemnation of others. Because there won't be things in your life that they can put their finger on and point at you. Now, you may be falsely accused. That's what Paul says when he says, you know, a spiritual man is going to judge all. In other words, he's going to judge everything in his life and everything that he's associated with. And He'll not be judged, but he won't be condemned by anyone. Now, those are those, there were those who tried to condemn Paul. What, was he guilty? 
There were those that tried to condemn Jesus, but was he guilty? They all knew he was guiltless. By the way, how can you be condemned if you have the mind of Christ? There is no therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And if you, if you are judging everything by the Word of God, it'll give you a confidence that it won't matter what somebody else says about you. You know, instead of people scrutinizing and investigating, they will be saying things like, I wish I had it together like you. you know, I don't have it together. God put me together. It's God that can put us together. I don't put myself together. He gives. It's he that gives purpose, meaning, and value to life. We simply need to be willing to receive it. And we must accept that we need him. That only he can give that purpose and meaning and value to life. You see, it's possible to hear the truth of the word of God again and again. But if there's not the revealing of the Holy Spirit and a willingness to receive it, a genuine interest and willingness to do it, it will not proceed to comprehension and application in your life. Jesus said this over and over again. He that hath an ear, let him hear. And when he addressed the seven churches in Revelation, again he said, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. John seven seventeen, he said this, If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. In other words, if any man has a willingness to do the truth, he will know the teaching. Doctrine is teaching. He will know it. And he'll know whether it's of God or whether it's simply of man. The key is a willingness to do it. A willingness to do it. How many people have you witnessed to that turn away? Why do they turn away? Because they're not willing to do it. They're not willing to do it. How often do we as Christians turn away from things God? Because we're not willing to do it. We don't understand some truths because we're not willing to do them. It may be because we're afraid of what somebody else might say or think. Sometimes we're more concerned about what others think. And we're fearful of what will happen if I obey the Lord. That's a lack of preeminence, putting the Lord in a preeminent place in our life. You see, God wants us to know know all those things that are freely given to us of God. All the things that pertain to life and godliness, they can be known, but we must be willing and desirous to receive them. God wants us to have assurance that our faith stands in the power of God. If you'll submit to the truth of the word of God, you can have a faith that stands in his power, his peace, his security. But if it's a standing in the wisdom of men, it will not be secure. There's no security in the wisdom of men. So how is your faith this morning? 
Is it standing in the power of God or the wisdom of men? What is the foundation upon which it is established? The foundation needs to be the Word of God. It's a firm foundation. My favorite song is How Firm a Foundation, Ye Saints of the Lord. It's laid for your faith in His excellent Word.